Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, a number of women have written in asking for a podcast about cesarean sections. Well, today's their lucky day, Kristen. Today is their lucky day. Because that's what we're going to talk about. And specifically, we're going to focus on the rising rate of C-sections and of elective C-sections, of women telling their doctors, hey, doc, I would like a C-section to deliver this baby. Right. As opposed to waiting for an emergency to happen or, you know. Or just allowing the doctor to decide. Saying, Correct. Hey, flip a coin. Heads is vaginal. Tails is That's exactly how it happens. Yes. (laughs) Actually, exactly how it happens is uh, a cesarean section is a surgical procedure used to deliver a baby through an incision in the mother's abdomen and a second incision in the uterus. These incisions, both the one in the abdomen and the uterus, are done horizontally. The one in the abdomen is done typically near the pubic hairline, whereas the one in the uterus is done Similarly, uh, in the lower part of the uterus. Yeah, and that would be referred to as a low transverse incision, um, as opposed to a classic C-section, which is something that really isn't used anymore. And that was uh, back in the day, doctors would make a large vertical incision uh, that usually would prevent women from future vaginal delivery due to um, a heightened increase of uterine rupture. But cesarean technology has improved. Um, and leading up to the surgery, doctors might have you get blood tests in case you need a transfusion during the surgery. Uh, they'll discuss anesthesia options, a common choice for instance, is a spinal block in which medication is injected directly into the sac surrounding the spinal cord. Um, And then there's another choice called an epidural where the medication is injected just outside of the sac. Either one Mm. sounds very painful. But probably not as painful as actually shooting a baby out of your vagina. This is true. Right. No, I my I was delivered vaginally. Personal time, everyone. Yeah, oh, yeah. Gather around. No, I was delivered vaginally and my mother I think felt a single twinge of pain and was like, "Shot, please." She had she had the epidural. <clears throat> so anyway, if a health emergency prompts a C-section rather than this is an elective C-section happening, the doctors will probably check the baby's lung maturity uh, via amniocentesis because there is a concern that if the baby comes out earlier than expected that their lungs are not fully developed and they could develop breathing problems at birth. And in addition to that, uh, cesareans don't take long at all, usually less than an hour. But after the surgery, moms will usually need to stay in the hospital for a little bit longer than they would with a vaginal delivery, usually for about three days. And it takes around four to six weeks for the incisions to heal, during which time, no big surprise here, you can't have sex. And I mean, I've heard the recovery is really painful. I mean, moms out there, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I'd want to be having any sex or moving, walking, breathing, sneezing, taking care of a baby. Any of those things. Now, we're going to get a little bit into the history of the C-section, but first, let us clarify with the etymology of the cesarean that it is not so named because it's derived from the surgical birth of Julius Caesar. 
Yeah, the whole thing with cesarean sections is that originally they were uh, performed as a last result. They were or last resort. Sorry, they were not to save the mother's life. It was typically performed on dead or dying women to retrieve the baby. And so Julius Caesar likely could not have been born through this cesarean. Uh, procedure because his mother is reputed to have lived to hear of her son's invasion of Britain. So she couldn't have had one. More likely, uh, the origins of the term is that Roman law under Caesar decreed that all dead or dying pregnant women must undergo the procedure to save the child. And cesarean sections, though, that the actual procedure of the child being delivered through the stomach rather than through the vaginal canal has been around since ancient times, long before Caesar even came around. It's even in Greek mythology. There's a story about Apollo removing Asclepius from his mother's abdomen. And this guy would go on to found a religious medical cult. And imagining Apollo being your doctor... I, I think I'd be cool with Apollo with delivering my baby. The sun god? Sure. <laughs> I, absolutely. I might need to wear a little sunscreen. <laughs> uh, but there are also numerous references to cesareans uh, that appear in ancient Hindu texts, Egyptian texts, uh, of course, in Grecian texts, Roman texts, and other... I, I'm just going to keep saying texts over and over <laughs> again. Uh, but in all sorts of European folklore. And there are also ancient Chinese etchings that depict the preceding But then it's not until 1500 that we have the first written record of a mother and baby surviving the operation. But this is a questionable story. It's supposedly a Swiss sow gilder, (laughs) a far cry from Apollo, performed the operation on his wife. But again, the origins of that are pretty murky. Um, And it was called, though, a cesarean operation until... 1598, when Jacques Guillemot's book on midwifery introduced the term section. Sidebar, uh, I was laughed at by some nurses when I said midwifery. They laughed, laughed at me. It's midwifery. So thank you for pronouncing it correctly. So no nurses out there laugh. Yeah, do you have a, like a, do you regularly walk by like a band of salty <laughs> midwives on your way to work? Yeah, at the bus stop. They're all <laughs> hanging out smoking, you know, tossing, tossing dice. <laughs> you know, those nurses. So, I mean, speaking of midwifery, you know, that was typically, as we've talked about in the podcast before, that was a women's centric Thing, But cesarean sections were more male-centric as far as performing the operation. Women were barred from performing it for, for the most part until the late 19th century. But interestingly enough, the first recorded successful C-section in the British Empire was conducted by a woman. Sometime between 1815 and 1821, James Miranda Stewart Berry performed the surgery while masquerading as a man and serving as a physician to the British Army in South Africa. Yeah, the story of Dr. Barry, just also on a side note, is pretty fascinating because when she wanted to go to med school, women were not allowed. And so she was like, you know what, I'm just going to start dressing like a man. And it totally worked. And uh, it's funny because there were writings at the time when Barry was in Africa doing all this work from people who commented on how uh, this, this doctor had a certain effeminacy. He was always trying to hide. And he actually became embroiled in the steamy love affair with a married aristocrat Ooh. in Africa as well, who gave Barry a dog named Psyche. 
that the doctor took around everywhere. And, Dr. Barry, for Canadian listeners, Dr. Barry was later transferred to Canada, thus becoming Canada's first female doctor. Huh, look at that British Empire. Indeed. Indeed. So we think of these successful C-sections, the ones where the mother and child actually do survive the operation, as more of a modern procedure, but 19th century travelers reported seeing it performed in Uganda and Rwanda, and the wound would be sewn shut and stuffed with, like, banana leaves and things. I mean, it's it's very fascinating that there were reports of... You know, local village doctors performing this without all of the quote-unquote modern 19th century British technology. Right, but of course, as technology such as crucial elements like anesthesia become more readily available and as births start moving from homes into hospitals, uh, new obstetrical and surgical skills begin to be developed as well and C-sections become a little safer and a little more common, even though they're still considered for very, very, very long time to be last resorts. Yeah, and this is around the time, too, that doctors started advocating for that low cervical C-section, which reduced infection rates, as opposed to that uh, more drastic vertical cut. Now, this is a bit of a gory detail, but this technological development of C-sections is also a really good thing because it replaced something called a craniotomy in which if the baby had to be delivered by emergency, since they didn't know how to um, surgically get inside of the womb uh, through a C-section, they actually had to go into the vaginal canal and, and break the fetal skull and pull the baby out. Out that way. Ooh. Yeah. So C-sections were definitely a, a positive development. And as urbanization continues, one of the other reasons why we see C-section rates rise is not just because more women are starting to go to the hospital to have their babies, but also because kids are developing rickets, which is a nutritional deficiency that leads to the softening of the bones. And all these women were growing up with it and had malformed pelvises that prevented normal delivery. Now, this was also addressed once safe milk became more available, um, but uh, yeah, I, I had no idea that rickets yeah. and C-sections in the U.S. were somehow connected. No idea. And so, you know, after safe milk was available, kids are healthier, they have better nutrition. But doctors were slow to respond to the reduced need for C-sections and kept doing them pretty much at the same pace. And after World War II, C-section rates never dropped back to where they were before rickets became widespread. And today, C-section rates have reached an all-time high. And we'll get into reasons why that is. But jumping forward to modern cesareans, let's talk about health and safety and start off with risks to the baby. Because there are some risks associated, of course, with uh, babies delivered by C-section. They are, for instance, more likely to develop transient tachypnea, which is a problem marked by abnormal normally fast breathing during the first few days after birth. And I have a feeling, Caroline, it's related to that issue of lung development Mm -hmm. that you mentioned earlier. Uh, C-sections done before 39 weeks or without proof of lung maturity could also increase that risk of other breathing problems such as respiratory distress syndrome. And there are some smaller risks of surgical incidents uh, such as uh, surgical nicks to the baby, but that's very rare. 
Yeah. Um, there are more numerous risks for the mother, although some of these are also rare. Uh, there's endometritis, which is the inflammation or infection of the membrane lining the uterus that can cause fever, foul-smelling vaginal discharge, and uterine pain. Increased risk during future pregnancies, such as bleeding, problems with the placenta, and uterine rupture. And uh, also increased bleeding, more so than with vaginal birth, reactions to anesthesia, blood clots, wound infection, injury to other organs. So there are a couple that are specific to C-section in particular, but also just general risks that you would face with most surgeries. Yeah, and um, when it comes to emergency C-sections, complications that tend to arise from those are, on the upside at least, more commonly linked to whatever medical condition prompted that emergency delivery rather than the C-section. So while there are definitely some more unique risks that are associated with cesarean delivery, a lot of times those complications might be more associated with uh, a, a condition that a woman already came to the hospital with. Now, one thing that moms and doctors have been concerned with over the years is, is it okay uh, to have vaginal childbirth after you have had a C-section? Are you only supposed to stick with C-sections once you've had one? And a 2004 study in the New England Journal of Medicine said that Serious complications are possible, but the absolute risk is very small when you have a vaginal childbirth after C-section, which is abbreviated in these journals as VBAC, which I did not know. It has its own little abbreviation. So that said, the risk being small, it is worth pointing out that when compared to elective repeat C-section, women attempting vaginal birth after C-section are at a somewhat increased risk of serious obstetric complications. And that jives with a recent Australian study that came out in 2012, which found that repeat C-sections might be a safer option. Um, It found that among babies born by a planned cesarean, 0.9% died or had serious complications compared with 2.4 Four percent of babies born by VBAC, and 0.8 percent of moms who had repeat C-sections experienced severe bleeding, while 2.3 percent of those who gave birth vaginally did. And the thing is, these risks might sound very small. We're talking about like 0.8 percent. That might not sound like a lot, but the differences are statistically significant, and things for moms to have serious conversations with their doctors about as they're deciding the kind of birthing method that is best for them. So all that being said, how many C-sections are safe for a woman to have? Dr. Roger Harms, his name is Dr. Harms, over at Mayo Clinic said that while there's not a ton of research out there about this, most women can safely have up to three C-sections, although each repeat C-section is generally more complicated than the last. I mean, think about it. Let's let's put it in terms of any surgery. You keep having the same surgery and complications could arise. And so the primary concern when you're having repeat C-sections is weakened uterine wall, problems with the placenta, such as implanting too deeply in the uterine wall or covering the cervical opening, which is placenta previa. There's also risk of bladder injuries and heavy bleeding. Now, when uh, I feel like a lot of times when we think about or hear about C-sections, a lot of times it is with all of these warnings and concerns over uh, whether or not it is good for the mother and the baby. We, we, I think we still tend to frame it in our minds as this kind of emergency procedure. But in developing nations, some research has found that it could really improve maternal health outcomes. There was an article that came out in the New York Times in May of 2012, which 
talked about how performing C-section deliveries extensively in 49 poorer nations could save almost 17,000 mothers' lives each year and prevent many fistulas, which are internal tearings that happen during prolonged labor. And in most countries, the operation would save two to six times the cost in income created by mothers who would otherwise have died or would have been disabled. So as C-sections may be on the rise in more developing nations, as some uh, NGOs and nonprofits look into uh, giving doctors, local doctors, the resources to do that, it's sort of mirroring a pattern that's going on in the United States and the Western world of C-sections being on the rise. But there is all this debate around these rising numbers as to whether or not this is cause for concern, because a lot of it has to to do with the fact that women are outright asking for C-sections once they, you know, learn that they're pregnant and everything, they're saying, oh, you know what, we're going to go ahead and schedule this delivery. But first, um, let's talk more about the how much that rate has risen. So C-sections are actually the most common procedure done in operating rooms now. And between 1996 and 2007, the rate jumped from 21 percent to 32 percent of all births. That's coming from a U.S. News and World Report article in September 2010. And what's surprising to a lot of researchers is that the C-section rate is actually very high for first-time mothers. That's one of every three new moms getting one. Yeah, and some gynecologists are, are really concerned about this. For instance, Robert Barbieri, who's the chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Brigham Women's Hospital, says that the rate should be more in the 20% range. And those concerns are stemming from whether or not these women are undergoing unnecessary major medical procedures because a C-section is a surgery. You undergo anesthesia. Mm -hmm. and incisions are made. We've described the process. And so some doctors are concerned that uh, we are almost doing too much in that regard. Okay, so why why this increase? A Time article in August of 2010 looked at possible reasons, and some of those include the rising rate of multiple births, more obesity in pregnant women, the older age of mothers, urging women, some doctors are urging women to undergo repeat C-sections, and an increase in induced labor, up from 10% of deliveries in 1990 to more than 22% in 2006. And going into this research, I didn't think Induced labor had anything to do with C-sections, but it sure does. Dr. Deborah Ehrenthal did a study of induced labor and found that nearly 40% of cases of induced labor were elective. And she says that reducing elective labor induction could lower the C-section rate in the U.S. by as much as 20%. Yeah, and uh, one of the ways that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, for instance, is looking at lowering the C-section rate is by urging doctors to attempt what's called a trial of labor. Essentially, a woman comes into the hospital to have a baby, and the plan is, okay, we're going to try for a vaginal birth, but we're going to have everything in place for a C-section if necessary. So you're going to really, 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 really try... But we'll do a C-section if it comes to that. Thus, at least giving it, I don't know, I guess giving it a college try. Giving it the old college try. Yeah. Um, One other interesting thing about the rates of C-section is that they do differ so 
widely between hospitals. And part of that is just different doctors are encouraging different things. Um, this is coming from a study in health affairs in March of this year. C-section rates range from as low as 7% in some hospitals to as high as 70% in other U.S. hospitals. And even among low-risk pregnancies, those rates varied. They, the study authors write, vast differences in practice patterns are likely to be driving the costly overuse of cesarean delivery in many U.S. hospitals. And now here's why, because I was like, okay, well, what's the, what's really the concern? I mean, yes, obviously we have a health concern with women undergoing unnecessary procedures, but they point out because Medicaid pays for nearly half of U.S. births, government efforts to decrease variation are warranted. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, well, the, the newest wrinkle to arise in all of this, as uh, I've now, now mentioned a, a few times on the podcast, is this whole elective factor of women taking a bit more ownership over the whole childbirth process in terms of saying, hey, you know what, I want to sign up for a C-section. And the funny thing is, uh, I, I feel like it's getting a lot more press in the past few years and uh, as being this new medical trend, but we found a 2001 USA Today article reporting on the quote-unquote whole new trend of patient choice cesareans, but I mean, it's definitely something that is picked up, and when those numbers were first starting to pick up in the early 2000s, physicians were very reluctant to agree to it. Uh, there was an article in the journal Birth from 2004 that talked about how without a clear medical indication, most practitioners who were surveyed wouldn't perform a C-section. And that was based on a survey of 170 physicians. But there was an interesting difference among who gave a thumbs up or a thumbs down to elective C-sections. Uh, physicians who were men and had patients with higher socioeconomic statuses were more likely to give the thumbs up to an elective C-section. And I feel like that links to this whole stereotype of, as our UK listeners might have heard, being too posh to push. Uh-huh. That it's this thing that, oh, well, you know, ladies who lunch <laughs> just want to pencil in. Fitting in the birth between a mani and a penny. Yeah, well, and also thinking about the whole Marissa Meyer, CEO of Yahoo, who literally, like, scheduled her birth, took a very limited maternity leave and was back at work. I mean, the ki- whole kind of, you know... Let's put it on our Google calendar and go. Well, so what does the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology say about this? What, you know, what were they weighing in on? And they said that, look, if the woman is informed and gives adequate informed consent and the doctor believes the C-section promotes overall health and wellness, then the surgery is ethically Justified, But doctors are saying, should we even do it? There was a discussion on the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists site and the UK's National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, abbreviated NICE, uh, in 2004, said that when a woman requests a C-section because she has a fear of childbirth, she should be offered counseling, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, to help her address those fears. But in 2011, NICE turns around and gives new guidelines that say, for all women requesting a C-section, if after discussion and offer of support, a vaginal birth is still not an acceptable option, offer a planned cesarean section. And that's a definite change from when they said previously, maternal request is not on its own an indication for cesarean section. And that seems like 
a positive development. I mean, uh, I feel like these are issues where obviously you and I can't speak from first person experience, but the thought of having a child and not having that much ownership over how you how, do it. Yeah, how I do it would make me uneasy. And I can understand how doctors might say, okay, you're, you know, you're clearly just terrified of the pain of childbirth. Let's, you know, educate you and do mm-hmm. what actually goes into all of this. Maybe a C-section isn't really, you know, what, what you think it is, but it does seem like they're, they're the fact that elective C-sections are becoming more accepted medically and socially mm-hmm. is a positive thing for women. Although, Veronica Bergeron in the journal Bioethics in 2007 would argue the opposite and from a feminist standpoint. Now, when you send me the link to her paper in Bioethics talking about how elective C-sections are actually bad for women, Mm -hmm. um, I was surprised because I would assume that the feminist standpoint on you know, childbirth w- would be choice, choice, choice. Right. You know, whether I want to be at home with a doula in a hot tub having my baby underwater or in a highly medicalized environment in the hospital, scheduling that baby and getting out of there. Right. No, uh, Bergeron says that the medical, it's just that medicalization of childbirth that is terrible. She says it reflects a sexist bias with regard to conceptions of the body. And, you know, we mentioned informed consent earlier that ACOG said, hey, you know, as long as there's informed consent, go ahead. She said that that can't be meaningfully exercised unless women are made aware of the sexist underpinnings of the medical model of childbirth, which she explains as, the exclusively feminine attributes of childbearing make it particularly vulnerable to appropriation by a male-dominated medical profession in a patriarchal culture. Well, I mean, she has a point if we go back to, say, when James Miranda Stewart Berry was cross-dressing in order to get into medical school because women were not allowed in medical school in 1809. And, uh, I mean, and it has been, it's only been in, you know, the past 50 years, really, that women have been catching up to men numbers-wise in medicine. But it's, it's almost looking maybe too, too deeply into What's going on when we're talking about like our health and our body is um, a, a patriarchal past worth dismissing the the present, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. This whole conversation, though, too, about this medicalization of childbirth, which to me in the back of uh, the whole paper was, you know, you should be having a natural childbirth. Well, who is she to tell people what to do? That's what I'm saying. It's such a childbirth becomes such a complicated issue. And we're not even going to get into breastfeeding and that whole debate. You know, it's like I I would think that we should embrace as women. We should be embracing the choice of elective C-sections because there was also this salon essay that I felt like stood in such sharp contrast to Bergeron. Um, It was by Paige Parker not too long ago about her planned C-section and what relief that she felt when she kind of allowed herself to say, you know what, I don't want to have a vaginal delivery. She was hoping, actually, that her baby was breached right. with the feet down so that the doctor would have to do perform a C-section and that you know she felt a lot of guilt at first 
for wanting that. Right. But was so relieved. Was so relieved. Although she did follow up at the end by saying it was insanely painful recovery. And because friends of hers had warned her that she was crazy for wanting a C-section because the recovery is a bit more intensive sometimes. Um, But just even having that choice leading up to the delivery and the childbirth um, seemed to make a big difference. And again, I mean, this is also one of those conversations where... Every woman's situation is going to be different. Right. You know, I, we don't want a blanket thing of saying, you know, only C-sections, only vaginal births, only hot tubs and sensual music in the background. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> I, it really got me thinking clearly about, <laughs> about baby having. I don't know. I just the whole time I was reading Bergeron's essay, I, I pictured her with like one hand on a hip and the other hand like pointing accusingly at me. Right. Right. Which is the opposite, I'm sure, of what she's actually advocating for. Right. I would, I would hope. Well, we'd hope. Because I certainly would not want someone using the guise of feminism to tell women what to do. That, that's, uh, that wouldn't be good. Yeah. Well, one instance of when someone is going to tell you what to do, Kristen. Yes. Is when you have to have an emergency or an unplanned C-section. The doctor's going to be like, listen, lady. This baby's coming out. So what circumstances are we in when we have to have an emergency C-section? The most common reason is that a woman's labor is not progressing, and so they have to get the baby out. Other reasons include the baby not getting enough oxygen, the baby being in that abnormal position, breech, the feet or the buttocks being first in the birth canal, or transverse, when that baby is a little you know, like football player, and he's trying to, like, go out sideways with, through his shoulder. I don't know. Oh, ow. I don't know what that baby's <laughs> doing. Um, another reason could be that you're carrying multiples, because it's common for one to be in an abnormal position. Although, you don't actually have to have a C-section when you're having multiples. Uh, a New York, New York Times reported in February 2013 that there was no difference in outcomes between vaginal and C-section deliveries for mothers of multiples and that the serious medical problems were completely even between births. Like there were just there were 36 serious medical problems for C-section babies and 35 for vaginal birth deliveries. So, yeah, and that's a pretty significant development because the thinking had been for a long time that with multiples probably going to go with a C-section. Precisely. So other times you're going to have to have an unplanned or emergency C-section include, like we mentioned earlier, there's a problem with your placenta, either placental abruption or that placenta previa. There could be a problem with the umbilical cord or you or your baby has a health condition or concern. And I would be curious to know, though, which is more common for doctors to tell uh, you know, expecting mothers, hey, you're going to have a C-section even though you want, you've requested a vaginal delivery for X, Y, and Z, or for a doctor to say, no, we're going to try for a vaginal delivery even though you've requested a C-section. Yeah. I wonder, I, I'm really curious to hear from listeners about that issue of, you know, whether, how, how much, I guess, negotiating power you really have with the doctor in terms of what, which kind of delivery method you go for. Yeah, and I'd be interested to hear it from the moms out there. Did you go into the hospital expecting one thing and you got the other? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I would imagine that, that number would be pretty high because with the trial of labor situation, when you go into the hospital intending to give the old college try to a vaginal birth, 
and then they have to do a C-section. It's a double-digit percentage, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. So now is the time, though, we need to hear from listeners out there who can speak first person to the C-section scenario. Mm-hmm. And also to the women who have written in, though, asking for you know more info on C-sections, we hope this has helped. It is a pretty in-depth topic, but we tried to touch on as much stuff as we could. Yeah. And for etymology nerds, correct everyone about the old Julius Caesar myth. Right. Not true. <laughs> so, yeah, send us your letters. Momstuffadiscovery.com is where you can send them. You can also message us on Facebook, or if you have a quick quip, you can tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And now, back to our letters. Yeah, here's one from Sean about our women's basketball coaches episode. My thoughts were along the lines of youth coaching, he says, and the division of household labor. You've mentioned on several previous podcasts that the division of household chores is becoming more equitable, but that it's still not even close to even. I wonder if this leaves dads with more to volunteer as youth coaches. That, along with the preconceived notion that guys know more about sports than girls, something I know my younger sister hates, means that women aren't going to get the fake-it-till-you-make-it benefit of the doubt that men would, because, let's face it, many youth coaches are far from experts. P.S., Sean says, Pat Summit is truly amazing and belongs on the Mount Rushmore of American coaches. Not women's coaches or basketball coaches, but all-time, any sport, any gender coaches. So thanks for your uh, thanks for your input, Sean. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about the division of labor thing. Well, I've got one here from Carmen, who played women's soccer in college. And she writes, I dealt with many of the issues you described regarding the male versus female coaches. I had a female coach for the first two years who was unfortunately one of the worst coaches I've ever dealt with. This prompted one of my teammates to write a public blog post about how women's teams ought to have male coaches because men are less prone to being over-emotional or engaged in petty fights with the players. This is a shocking statement to me since I have had many good and bad coaches of both genders during my lifetime and in 2009 when this happened we ought to have progressed past the idea that women can't be coaches. Luckily my school had a female athletic director who had been a coach herself for many years and after discovering the blog post she gave my team quite a speech about how hurt she was that the blog post dismissed all of her hard work as a coach and promoted the idea that women are inherently incapable of leading a team. Looking back I think the most important thing I took away from that experience is that women are often the ones holding themselves back from achieving more. My female teammate publicly wrote about how my female coach was a bad coach because she was female. But women need to support each other and not promote those kinds of stereotypes. So thanks so much for this podcast and all the other ones you do. That's true. Ladies helping ladies. And men. And men can help ladies too. Let's all just help each other. Let's all hold hands around the globe. Except around the ocean parts. (laughs) So you can send your letters again to momstuffatdiscovery.com. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast, and find us on Tumblr at stuffmomneverToldyou.tumblr.com. Be sure to check out our brand spanking new YouTube channel on youtube.com slash stuffmomneverToldyou. And if that's not enough for you to do during the week, you can head to our website, it's howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 